Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha! Welcome to BC Radio Live for Wednesday, March 26th. We have another wall-to-wall, not a second to spare show for you tonight, so listen quickly and we'll try to talk to everybody during the hour. First up tonight is the band A Kiss Could Be Deadly. Their self-titled debut album was released just last Wednesday, and they're here to talk with us tonight. We'll also talk with Travis from the band Crash Romeo. Their new album, titled Gave Me the Clap, was just released yesterday. Author and Washington insider Deal Hudson has written Onward Christian Soldiers, The Growing Political Power of Catholics and Evangelicals in the United States, and we'll talk with him about that brand new book. And finally, we'll talk with Ray Reese, author of Abigail in Gangland, who is, which has been described as a sprawling Texas brawl of a novel. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hello, Eric. Hello, Philip. Man, that was a mouthful. You used up half the show just saying who's going to be on the show. <laughs> it seems like it, yes. Also with us tonight is Lisa McKay, Executive Director of BC Magazine. Welcome, Lisa. Hi there, guys. How are you tonight? We rock! <laughs> I'm doing splendidly. I was out flying kites with my kids at 7, 7.30 at night with 75-degree uh, weather, so this, this couldn't be better. Well, it's Yay. even warmer here now. We finally came out of, emerged from the... Deep freeze, the snow all melted. We were up to about 50 today and supposed to hit, hit 60 by the weekend. So we're, uh, we are cruising into spring. Overwhelming. Wow. Well, I'm watching the, I mean, it's all relative, but, you know, uh, I'm checking out the, uh, the Indians down in Florida for a few more days. And their last few games, game time temperature has been in mid 60s. So they're, you know, they're not oh. doing that much better. <laughs> Well, let's uh, go ahead and get started. I'll play a sample from the new album, A Kiss Could Be Deadly. That was Broken Music, the first single from A Kiss Could Be Deadly's self-titled debut album. We'll hear a little bit more from the band in a few minutes, but let's jump right in and get started. Uh, I believe we have almost everybody. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Lauren, John, Kelly, and Chris. Hello. Hey. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> we are excellent. How are you? Great. Doing great. Man, I went into the basement at my house, ran home a couple hours ago, and slapped on the 
self-titled A Kiss Could Be Deadly, and I'm new wave dancing around the basement. The kids <laughs> came down said, what is wrong with you? What has grasped you, Father? And, uh, yeah, I really liked it. Not that it's purely retro by any means. I think it's, you know, the production sounds very modern, and uh, I think the ideas are quite modern. But, hey, I, I'm an 80s guy, so I, I love the... the uh, the electronic sound, the keyboard sound, and then mixed in with the real nice kind of poppy, punky guitar sound. It's it's great. I love it. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've been listening all afternoon as well. Uh, I, I was just busted in the chat room for dancing around on video while listening to just a <laughs> 50-second sample. So Perfect. <laughs> well, uh, why don't, since we are, uh, <laughs> we are doing four interviews tonight... 15 minutes each. We already blabbed a little bit here at the beginning. Why don't you guys uh, and and uh, you know don't don't be afraid to just jump in and uh, someone pick. Give us a little background. How you got together? As I understand, you met at uh, UC Riverside. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is Chris. Um, Lauren and I met at UCR, and I had been in punk rock bands with uh, all the rest of the dudes before that. So. We uh, we kind of wanted to do something a, a little bit different and started it off with just like all drum machines and synthesizer and, and very um, electro dance pop. And then uh, we were passing out the, the demos that we had made to some of our friends and family and it was getting such a good response that we decided to turn it into a, uh, a full band and recruited the rest of the dudes and um, started playing around Riverside and it, it just started going really well, so we decided to take it serious. So you started off as Erasure and ended up as a, as an interesting cross between Duran Duran with a female singer and No Doubt. <laughs> or <Thanks>. some such <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, really, I think the uh, I think all of the the big name references, I think, really fit. I, what What really grabbed me was the consistency of the songwriting, and as I understand it, that's Chris, and the production is super. It, really, it's crisp, it's clean, um, it's not, you know, it's not too wet, it's not too dry, it's it's really nice, really professional. Who produced it? Uh, actually, I did that too. Oh my, you are a man of many hats. <laughs> yeah, um, and Kelly, uh, our bass player, helped engineer, and we had our, our buddy Daniel Castleman that had uh, done all of our, our EP and our demos before that. Um, we had him help mix us because uh, that's that's one area where um, we're not the greatest at yet. But Kelly did actually mix the uh, the acoustic track at the very end. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, the production is excellent. So, wow, that you guys are a self-contained unit all the way around. Very professional already. How long have you been together? Um, I, I would say, as this lineup, about three years. There was probably a year before that where Lauren and I were just, um, you know, had a had a bunch of drum machines and synthesizers in the band. But as this lineup, uh, about three years. So you guys are what mid twenties? Is that is that right? Yeah. Yep, that's right. Cool. Now I'm interested in Metropolis. We've we've been hearing from bands um, all of a sudden on Metropolis, and I know Metropolis as a you know, real electronic slash industrial label, they, but they seem to be mutating uh, more into uh, a rock sound. Do you, would, any thoughts on that? I, I find it interesting the way that label, the personalities that labels develop and how that changes over time. Kelly, you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. As a fan of the label, uh, prehence, you know, like uh, all their other bands, Birthday Massacre and Covenant and more industrial sounds, 
Um, after talking to Dave a bit, he just kind of wanted to kind of give Metropolis a, a rebirth, so to speak, and, I mean, maintain that, but also kind of branch out a little bit and, uh, you know, kind of get his little feelers in different areas, and um, I guess we caught his ear, so it's a uh, good thing for us. <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, it's not like that it's completely alien, because you do, you certainly have a, a synth element, but, you know, you're, you're definitely more of a traditional rock band, rock band, than than uh you know what I think of them back to you know frontline assembly and and stuff like that. Um so the record's out. What kind of receptions are you getting? I'm seeing a lot of good press quotes. Yeah, Chris, you're on the MySpace. What it, what have you been seeing? Um it yeah, it's been getting a a really good response so far, but um as of as of yet we haven't had anyone uh really really tear it down. But um, I'm interested to hear what what some of the the cooler, more hip places think of it that aren't um, usually. Uh, I don't know. They don't give good reviews that often. Like I would, I'd be very interested to hear what like Pitchfork had to say about it, or some of the some of the online sites that are that are usually really harsh. Because I'd like to get an honest opinion because most of the people uh, giving us praise for it are friends and family and people that are biased. So I would really love to get a, an objective opinion on it, honestly. Well, that's, that's a good perspective to have. Yeah, you don't want, you don't ever want to get overconfident, but, uh, you know, on the other hand, if you know it's good, you know it's good. I mean, do you guys like it yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very John. pleased with came out. Yeah, you know, we're definitely pleased with the way it came out. And, uh, you know, we we just hope that the songs speak for themselves, essentially. All right, well, let's talk about the live element. Um, uh, have you had a, a, the official uh, release da- date yet or uh, tour, that kind of thing? Where where can people go to see you? This Friday, right? Well, what's that? This Friday in uh, Palm Springs? Yeah, one of our, we, you know, we're trying to set up um, a few different, CD release parties, different areas and stuff. So we have this Friday, Palm Springs at an all-age show. Um, we have um, the following Friday, April 4th, I believe, um, Riverside at Romano's. Um, so, you know, this should be fun, you know, pretty much planning on a CD release party for those two. Do you have a tour set up? Um, right now we're we're working on that. We're... Um, you know, it's all in the works, quote unquote. Um, hoping, you know, May, June, um, to be out on the road and and you know, letting everybody hear the goodness of a kiss could be deadly. Exactly. Well, I, I, I'm sure that the live show is uh exceptional and comes off quite well. Have you played a lot live heretofore? Have you or have you been more of a studio band? No, um, we've played a lot. Um, we've we pretty much. I mean, once once we decided to you know get going as a as a you know full on live project, um, and everybody jumped on board. I mean, we jumped right in, and and uh, I don't know, Chris. Do you know how many shows we've done? I'm not sure, like if we have a number, but uh, the last last time I checked on on MySpace because it, it lists all your previous shows, it was. Um, Upwards of uh, 150, but um, we've played more since then. So I, I would imagine around like 175, maybe maybe close to 200. Well, that's that is certainly a full time endeavor, and that's plenty plenty under your belt. Hey, where did the name come from? I hear there's some sort of Batman connotation. <laughs> True. 
<laughs> Chris, I'll let you answer that one. Uh, our our friend Justin that actually designed our CD layout and was a, was in the band for a little bit back when it very first started. Um, it was actually his idea. It's a, a quote from Batman Returns, and we both him and I are, are big Batman fans. So it just kind of fit because it was um, you know sexy but kind of dangerous and referenced one of one of our favorite uh, vigilantes. So we we liked it and have I don't know I'm I'm pretty proud of it. It every once in a while bands will I mean people will confuse us for like uh, one of the the new metal bands or one of the screamo bands just because it has like the phrase deadly in it or could be deadly. So that's that's the one drawback to it. But other than that, I think it's a pretty cool name. Well, I'm definitely in that category. When I uh, saw the the band name, I thought, oh boy, another emo band. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I was delighted to, to find out otherwise. In fact, let me jump in and let's, let's hear another sample. Uh, the song Poison IV. Uh, do you guys want to say anything about that before we listen to it? Well, uh, nope. we'll, let, we'll let it speak for itself. Here's another sample. <laughs> <laughs> another sample from A Kiss Could Be Deadly. Poison Ivy from A Kiss Could Be Deadly, which is available now. Now, you know, Poison Ivy is also a villain in uh, the Batman universe. I was going to say that. My son, <laughs> my youngest son, the four-year-old, he is a Batman freak. And we've been watching the, the Warner Brothers cartoon, the most recent cartoon series on DVD. And there's a lot of Poison Ivy in there. She's, uh, she's hot and deadly. Sounds deadly, <laughs> though. Sounds familiar, huh, Lauren? Um, Hot well, and deadly, Chris, huh? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's that's a good combo. Um, Chris, you you named that song. Is it? I actually yeah, no, one time thought, you know, it was definitely a play on that. Um, I a lot of times on, on lyrics and song titles, I'll I like to try and do that where there's there's double meaning. So I thought it was kind of cool because it had the the reference to the the Batman character and then. Um, I also just like the image of like pumping poison straight into someone's veins. So That's a that great cool. title. Yeah, it is. It's very clever. It's very. Uh, I like. I like that very much. You're, you're definitely a, a wordsmith. I have a question for Kelly. How are yeah. How are you going to find time to mow all those lawns? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've I've been volunteered that before, but um, you know. I am a uh, landscape architect. Not really. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'll find time. I don't know. 
just mowing lawns and sleeping and practicing, I guess, playing shows. Yeah, right. Maybe I should invest in one of those riding lawnmowers. I, I think so. And what you should do is come up with a you know a way to like like at the stadiums and and mow in like the band's logo or something. Exactly. Yeah. At all the at all the yards that you have to do, and, and for those of you who are wondering how that came up on the MySpace page of the band, which is by the way, MySpace.com slash a kiss could be deadly. It's important to get all those words right because, as, mm-hmm. as you guys were saying, there's other bands who have some similar you know words twisted around in there. So it's a kiss could be deadly, and that's on MySpace. But uh, the quote at the top of the page is. I'll, if you buy our album, Kelly will mow your lawn. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Gosh, we're already up to uh, to the 16-minute mark. And, yeah, uh, we, we are about out of time. So I, I guess we should, uh, as much as I'd like to stay in, in chat, because since I love the album so much, we should just mention again that A Kiss Could Be Deadly, the debut album, is available right now. You'll find a link to order it at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio or... You can just Google "Kiss Could Be Deadly," and fortunately, the band is the first couple of results. Well, thanks for talking with us, Lauren, John, Chris, and Kelly. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for having us. Thank you guys. Thank you. Super turnout. It's rare we get to talk to almost the whole band. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Thank Thank you guys. Bye. Well, it is it is really fun to talk to bands uh, the day after. A new album is released. We uh, managed to talk to the AKAs when they were in that situation last week. And uh, tonight we'll talk to Crash Romeo, assuming that uh, the phone lines all work out here correctly. And uh, in the meantime, though, here is a new song from the new album. This is Popular. Well, unfortunately, despite the best laid plans, it's looking like uh, Travis is not with us right now. Well, I, I'm I'm wondering if he tried to call in and we we had the lines all used up. That could be. It's also uh, mentioned that the album is new. In fact, it's so new that the band was performing an in-store CD release event earlier this evening. So it's possible that uh, Travis has not managed to break away from that yet. Yeah, I see. That was supposed to go till nine. Yeah. Uh, well, that's another really. I, I'm glad that we get. We, we've had some really interesting, you know, rock history people on. We've we've gone way back all the way to the to the 50s with some really interesting people. But I also love the fact that we've had a lot of really youngish bands, bands on their first, second, third albums, people in their cool. early mid 20s, because there's really an energy and enthusiasm there, and it, and it's great to see, and it's fun, and it's it's reinvigorating. 
And I love this Crash Romeo record, too. We really were two for two. Excellent this week. I like them. You know, I mean, it's it's not dissimilar from uh, from a number of, of popular kind of poppy punk bands, but they do it real well. There's really good energy, good songwriting. Um, I'm real curious to hear about who gave who the clap, of course. You know, that's... <laughs> That's interesting, but these guys are from the other coast. The uh, they're New Jersey band, and uh, the record's out uh, the 25th. So uh, that, that was what yesterday, yesterday on Trust Kill Records, and their site. Uh, all bands, I think it's I think it's obligatory these days has a MySpace site. It's right. MySpace.com/slash/CrashRomeo. They also have a official site, which also seems to be obligatory. Every band has to have at least two sites these days. And, uh, boy, theirs are more similar between the two sites than most. And that one is, funnily enough, CrashRomeo.com. And there they are, uh, hanging out with a uh, a hot blonde and looking, uh, you know, somewhat uh, somewhat punky, somewhat nerdy. I like that. I like that combo. be interesting to hear about it. Travis, who we hope to hear from at any moment, uh, we should give the phone number, I imagine. That's right. If uh, anybody wants to call in, I suppose we can have open lines for a few minutes as well. That would be 646-595-3195. That's 646-595-3195. You know, I've started to mention um, Google search terms. I was reading earlier this week that Supposedly, now you, you know these things get mangled on the internet uh, cross-culturally, but supposedly in Japan, uh, it is now quite common to not give the URL of a particular website, but instead to just give the search terms that are guaranteed to bring that website up as the first result. So it was kind of fun when I was preparing for tonight to say that uh, you could look for Kiss Could Be Deadly. That brings up their site as the first two, uh, the first two results, actually. And Crash Romeo, similarly, if you type in Crash Romeo into Google, it comes up as the first two results. Uh, you get their official site and their MySpace site. So that's kind of fun. I tried it for our authors, though, and that, that didn't work quite as well. Uh, well, that is an interesting concept. I mean, it's been evolving in that direction for so long now. Uh, I remember, you know, maybe five years ago, it, it struck me as it, that it seemed odd that people you know, were beginning to do that and that there was a whole new generation who weren't around in the in the nineties when it was a lot when search engines were a lot more iffy proposition that uh, that they were doing just that, that they weren't even bothering to create their favorites list in the browser and that kind of thing. And they were simply uh searching each time and uh and, and just keeping track of what what result or, or what term brought up uh, what they were looking for, and hopefully, you know, most of the time it was whatever the actual term is. I know Dawn, my wife Dawn, she doesn't keep track of that. I'm still, I think, I guess I'm still kind of 90s internet mentality, and I pretty obsessively keep track of the sites and, and have my favorites and update, sure. update that list and all that. But she doesn't do that. She she uses her history. She goes up to the top of the browser and uses yeah. history and sees where she went. And... Um, of course, you know, you can put in the beginning of terms and then uh, most browsers will complete them. And, well, uh, I think this, this isn't necessarily just a 90s versus a uh, current situation. I, I remember reading 
it was just one or two years ago, uh, a, a suggestion that it might be more of a gender split than almost anything else. And Lisa, I don't know, I don't know if you're the type to have a you know very detailed list of of nested bookmarks, or if like my wife, every time you want to get to a site, you type the name of the site in in Google and and click on the first result. I keep the things that I use constantly actually on my toolbar. Ah, see now that's that's more like my that's more like my setup. I I actually do rarely consult the uh, bookmarks just because my toolbar has nested folders on it. Yeah, I got a, I've got a really loaded toolbar. I also have extensive bookmarks, and I just find that searching is fast enough nowadays that I don't need to save everything. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm going to put you guys on hold real quick here and see if I can. Uh track anyone down. So uh, chat amongst sure. yourselves. <laughs> well, I, say, I don't know if you're disproving the gender theory or just proving what a remarkable woman you are, Lisa. Oh, I'm just a remarkable woman, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think being the, uh, how many different titles have I apparently used to introduce you? The executive editor, the executive director, the executive producer yeah. of BC Magazine. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all three of those things, apparently. <laughs> Cat herder, chief cat herder. I think that's cat how I'll herder. introduce you. That works well. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, I'm actually com- computer maven that I am. I'm in the process of uh, rebooting my computer as we speak because it just uh-huh. crashed while uh, while I was sitting here. <laughs> well, I, I hate it when that happens. I don't want to get into any sort of uh, <clears throat> get a Mac <clears throat> um, discussion oh. of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we- <laughs> This is actually this is actually a very venerable home built desktop computer mm. working on right now. I've got one of those myself, but it's currently sitting under the desk, non operational. Ah, uh, that's sad. I I am actually in the market for a, a new laptop right now, but uh, I don't think I can afford a Mac, Philip. Oh no no no. There, you know, to to get to get the Windows PC that that'll match it, especially if you're looking at laptops. I, I think you'll find that the Macs are extremely competitive. I don't know. I looked at a pretty loaded Dell for about two grand, and mm-hmm. the the Mac that I want is about three grand. So that's a pretty substantial price difference. Well, the Mac that you want, sure. You can you can get a Mac. You can get a Mac at around a Mac laptop for around a thousand dollars, and it's a it's a nice box. I mean, my wife's got one of those thousand uh, dollar MacBooks, and uh, she's quite happy with it. In fact, Don Olson, the uh, wife oh, I left a message. We'll we'll see. I I fear that we ran into something where he may have tried a you know ten after sure. or even quarter after, and uh, and the lines were possibly full, and uh, and then. Hasn't bothered to try to get try it again. Unfortunately, yeah, we may have uh, we may have blocked him out. We we were just discussing the uh, the benefits of Lisa getting a Mac laptop, much like your wife recently did. Oh, did she do it, or is she contemplating it? I'm no, we're we're I'm trying to convince her she should. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I've used Dawn's, and I. I don't know. I don't see that all that much difference. The the thing that kills me is is not. Uh, Apple versus versus uh, Microsoft. It's the it's the whole mouse versus that stupid pad touchpad. <laughs> I hate the touchpad. It drives yeah. me around the bend. I need a mouse, even if it's a little tiny one, is fine. You know. A few years ago, back when Google still liked us, um, we got a 
uh, a little package, care package at Christmas from them. I think I think for being a uh, relatively early, uh, and, and that's purely relative, uh, AdSense company, and we got a little package at Christmas that included this super cool little miniature mouse that you can plug into. You know, it's great for a, a laptop, and uh, I haven't really seen them that small, but I, I like that very much. That's what I would prefer to use. I, I find it really unwieldy to have to use the touchpad. It took me a long time to get used to working on a laptop. Very long time. The thing I never got used to were the little nubbies, the IBM ThinkPad red nubbies, pencil eraser nipple thingies. Oh, I hate those. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. I've, I have used those. Uh, I, I Yeah, I never figured that out. I guess you kind of point it directionally or bend it kind of in the direction you want it to go. Yeah, fortunately, ThinkPads now ship with both the uh, pencil eraser and the trackpad, and I, I it did take me a few days, but I did get used to the trackpad. All right, so I'm, well, I'm I okay guess with we're, that. we're pulling up on the next segment here, um, sadly enough, and uh, maybe we should... Uh, do we have any other material for uh, for our for our missing uh, Crash Romeo? Do we have any more tunes? Uh, no, we actually only have the one, uh, the single that we've already played. It was good. I was rocking to it, and uh, gosh, well, I, I guess we'll have to we'll have to bring them back uh, or keep track. Maybe he'll call it a different time in the show. Maybe we can squeeze in a, a moment or two. But uh, yeah, this is the problem with with the four. You know, um, it went fine last week because everyone did what they were supposed to do, and we're right on time and efficient and everything. But as we have learned over the last several months, you, you definitely cannot count on everyone all the time to do what they're supposed to do and be here at the right time and all that. And when we when we have zero leeway, as we do with these four 15-minute segments, it's, it's tough. Um, I guess we just have to go with the flow and do what we've done, which is chat about whatever. I, I'd say we're never at a loss for... Uh, for discussion topics amongst us. <laughs> no, indeed, that's the case. And, and I guess, uh, as well, if we hadn't had quite so many people on the switchboard, we, uh, it would have been more clear whether or not we had another caller lined up, and we could have held on to uh, a kiss could be deadly for a while longer. So true. So very true. All right, well, has Dr. Deal Hudson called in yet? Uh, actually, no. Although, amusingly enough, I, uh, I actually uh, intercepted uh, Ray Reese our fourth guest earlier tonight, uh, th- due to time zone confusion, I think things were miscommunicated to him. Uh, he called in at, uh, gosh, it was 7.45 Central Time. See, I'm already confused as well. That would have been 8.45 uh, Eastern Time rather than the 9.45 Eastern Time that he's scheduled for. So, gosh, I, I guess I could have had him hang out on the line. And uh, <laughs> Well, I assume you set him straight and invited yes. him to return in, in an hour. Yes, indeed, yeah. So he should be calling us in about 14 minutes now or so. All right, well, now that we're past the 9.30 mark, why don't we discuss the Dr. Deal Hudson situation? He's certainly an interesting fellow. Well, sure. Um, We are shifting from music to books, although he hasn't called. Our (laughs) intention is to talk to Deal Hudson, who's written a book called Onward Christian Soldiers, The Growing Power of Catholics and Evangelicals in the United States, 
um, he should be here to talk to us about it. I, I was pretty intrigued. I've not had a chance to read the book, but obviously it's a topic I'm somewhat interested in since I think most people would probably consider me uh, part of the religious right. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little curious to get his take on it. Yeah, his uh, the, the premise of the book, and then that was followed up. Did you see the the memo that he wrote to Barack Obama regarding his campaign? Um, that was the latest yeah. thing. I poked around his website, but I, I think I missed that somehow. Well, I will read a bit of that. But before we get to that, the book, uh, The Honor Christian Soldiers, is an analysis of the relationship that developed, uh, especially it goes back a ways. I guess it's been coming, I guess it probably goes back to Reagan, really. But uh, Well, let, 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 me, let me interrupt and say, uh, Dean, is that you? Deal. Oh, deal. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm Trying to read three pages at once. There you go. Deal. Welcome to the show. We were just uh, just beginning to talk. About we were going books. to speak for you. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. It'll be mu- it'll be much better for you to speak for yourself. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Well, we, you we have, have a doctorate and everything. Oh, I got all that stuff. <laughs> we have just finished mentioning that uh, the title of your book, Onward Christian Soldiers, and uh, I. But did I you mention the subtitle? Yes, the growing power of Catholics and evangelicals in the United States. Yes, sir. Super. And do, you believe, do you believe it? Um, I have to tell you, I, I'm somewhat mixed on that. I, I, I don't necessarily quite know where you're coming from. I poked around your, uh, your blog a bit this afternoon, but I haven't had a chance to read the book. I, I myself am one of those aforementioned evangelicals. I know from your blog that you were one of the aforementioned uh, Catholics. But I was an evangelical. Mm-hmm. I was a Southern Baptist minister. Really? Okay. Yeah. And you become a Catholic? I became a Catholic at age 34. Flam the Tiber, as they say. I did. I jumped all the way across. What was one the leap. impetus? One great leap. A uh, combination, but it was mainly an encounter with reading St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm. He blew me away. Totally blew me away. I read him and I said, maybe i got to do this. Well, what? A, that's a... Very, I hadn't picked that up. That's a super interesting um, alleyway to your story. What, what about specifically about Catholicism? You know, made enough difference that you were willing to make that you know rather life-altering, certainly title-changing, uh, a move. Well, I, you know, whatever I say about my particular journey, I'm not saying is true of all Southern Baptists or even their experience as Southern Baptists, but. See, I uh, converted. I was actually an evangelical convert uh, my junior year at the University of Texas. I be- walked the aisle of a Southern Baptist church and became a Christian. I went back to Texas, philosophy major, and within a few months I was president of the Baptist Student Union at the University of Texas, which was a very large thing to do. And I, I found out, though, very quickly that Southern Baptists uh, and those who headed the Baptist Student Union weren't supposed to be philosophy majors because I was told that if I studied philosophy, I was definitely going to hell and that, you know, how dare I do anything but simply study scripture and leave it at that. Now, that sounds, that sounds like it might be an isolated incident, but I kept bumping into that. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, got criticized for that. I went on to Emory for my doctorate and actually worked as an associate pastor at a major downtown Southern Baptist church. And I would do things like show films, like Billy Budd or To Kill a Mockingbird, 
and get criticized for not doing just Bible studies, and on and on and on. And I eventually decided that this, the kind of anti-intellectualism and fear of culture that I was running into simply wasn't necessary, and it, and it didn't fit my understanding of the Gospels either. Right. And once, and then eventually, you know, I discovered the Catholic tradition, and I was, you know, I was pretty much ready to uh, to embrace something like that. Yeah, there, there's an unfortunate uh, lack of understanding of history, I think, that that's prevalent in, in many parts of Southern Baptist Convention, and really, uh, I, I think, some pretty strong trends toward fundamentalism that that run through Southern Baptists and, and a lot of evangelicals. I don't. I don't mean to, to knock Southern Baptists. I have some, some friends who are. I'm, I'm personally an Anglican for many of the same reasons that... Uh, but you called yourself an evangelical. I, I'm an evangelical Anglican. And an, and an Anglican. He is a flippin' homeschooler. That's how yeah. crazy yeah. he is. He's a C.S. lewis Anglican. Yes, very much so. You know, but yeah. in between, you know, when I, I wanted to check things out on my way to the church the Catholic Church, that is, and I, I went around to several Episcopal churches trying to find the Church of C.S. Lewis, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, that, that's mostly long gone, with, with few exceptions. I, I happen to think I attend one, but, um, you know, I guess everybody's got to judge. Well, I mean, if you, if you found one, that's a pretty good thing to be in. Now, now the premise of your book, then, are, are you making a judgment about the rightness, wrongness, goodness, or badness of this, this growing power? Yes, I, I'm an advocate of it. I'm an apologist okay. for it. I think it's a good thing. I mean, it's not without its mistakes, it's, its excesses, its hubris, all that. But in general, it's been, it's been the savior of the Republican Party, for sure, and it's fundamentally changed modern American politics. I mean... If you look at the contemporary uh, or this contemporaneous election cycle, there's more talk about religion than ever before in American politics right now. Right. You've got the candidacy of Mike Huckabee, which is which is now ended. You've got uh, Mitt Romney running as a Mormon and and being asked to explain that and, and explain some of the details of his views. Um, now, in 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 Romney's case, especially specifically Governor Romney. Uh, he painted himself, for example, as, as going through the same sort of thing that Kennedy did when he ran as a Catholic. Do, do you see parallels there as well? No, I, I thought that was some. You know, I thought that was forced and stretched, and I think most Americans took it that way. Um, I know his supporters call it the sort of JFK moment, and they're all. Then these are friends of mine, I, and I don't pick a fight over it. I just kind of just move on to the next subject. Um, I think Mitt Romney's problem was not his Mormonism. I think it was the fact that he was a late convert to, he was a late concert convert to conservatism. And basically you can date it from the moment he, he, he decided to run for president. Right. I think that was his problem more than anything else. I think to blame it on his Mormonism is, 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 well, I mean, it's somewhat avoiding the, uh, the major issue that he had to deal with. So the early success of Mike Huckabee, though, seems like it would it would lend a, a lot of support to a lot of credence to your argument that Catholics and evangelicals, I, in this case, I would say, it'd be fundamentalist evangelicals, you know, have have rather a bit more power than maybe a lot of people suspected before Iowa. Well, if if they didn't know it, then then where have they been for thirty years? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what? politics have they been following 
You see, what hap- what's happened over and over again is that the, you know, the mainstream media has written the obituary of the religious right, the religious conservative movement. They, keep, they wrote it after 2006, they wrote it after 96, you know, and on and on and on. And it keeps coming back. And one story I tell in my book is about the uh, morning after the 2004 election when Charlie Rose called my friend Ralph Reed, and it was obvious that the religious right had reelected Bush. And he said, why didn't we see this coming? And you've got to ask yourself, what were liberal pundits like Charlie Rose thinking uh, were they really believing the hype and the spin that somehow John Kerry was going to, you know, carry the day in spite of the fact that he had alienated the most potent political force in America, that religious conservatives? Right. Now, one of the, I mean, I, let me think here. Two different ideas. Let, let's run with this one. Uh, a lot of people, I think, wouldn't just, Dispute your argument. Wouldn't dispute that there is, in fact, uh, you know, large and growing power among Catholics and evangelicals to influence politics. But I think that uh, some people would see that as scary. I know I mentioned, of course, I'm, I'm a member of the religious right myself. But one of my co-hosts, right here, listening quietly, uh, <laughs> is is, is uh, a member of the secular left. No, that's so, not me. So I'm in the no, middle. No, no. <laughs> we, we, we have a third host who's okay. Really all right. <laughs> so we've got left, right, and middle representatives. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vicious centrist. There you go. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that the question is, should people fear the rise of the religious right or their influence? Well, I mean, I, I don't think they should fear them any more than they would fear any political opponent. I mean, we're not really guilty of theocracy, and I say that kiddingly. I mean, the very fact that we've had that word thrown at us uh, is silly and it's it's stupid, frankly. And I I I, I take I go to some uh, effort to expose the silliness of that in my book. And yes, I mean if you if you're for gay marriage and if you're for abortion on demand and so forth, if you're for for if you're for a kind of enforced postmodern worldview, yeah, you should fear the religious conservative movement because that's what we're against. But you shouldn't fear us because, you know, we're not going to turn into the Salem witch trials or anything like that. It's not, we're, not, we're not aiming for theocratic rule. We're just aiming to have, A, you know, our, our uh, political wishes heard and respected, and, B, to try to uh, fight for them in the constitutionally prescribed way, as, campaigning as- and voting. Excuse me, I'm sorry. As a centrist, though, I mean, my concern is uh, I, I, I have sympathies kind of on both extremes, um, and which I guess is why I'm a centrist. But, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the use of the, the cudgel of the state to achieve uh, what are seem to me to be private-slash-moral issues, you know, rather than legal issues. In other words, if you outlaw, if if you use the 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 legal system, if you outlaw abortion, I mean that you know that's taking a a private moral view and enforcing you know a set of behavior through legal means. Is it not? No. Um, all I mean, most laws that we talked about are 
our laws because we think they're morally prescribed. They, they rest on morality, all laws. And, I mean, that's why we have law against murder, because we think it's wrong. And where a lot of people miss evangelicals and Catholics on this issue, and by the way, we're not one issue, folks. As, as I have a chapter in my book, pardon me for referring to my book. No, you should refer oh, no. to your book. Uh, Please I have do, a chapter, many times. Readily and often. Where it traces all the basic concerns of religious conservatives back to the family. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of hub. But, but where people miss our concern for this is that there's nothing about murder that's private affair. I mean, that's the point. Well, you know, it'd be, it'd be, you know, you can't equate what we think is, you know, a matter of life and death with taste in whether you like Woody Allen or the Marx Brothers. It's just, there are different kind of judgments, and we're not trying to prescribe taste. Taste is a private matter, but life and death is not. Well, rather than get too tied up on that issue, which I know it really does probably in the end come down to whether or not you believe uh, that murder. abortion ends yeah, life precise, or, yeah, or it not. It does, absolutely, yeah. come down to that. Um, what, what do you... Hmm. <laughs> One of the things I've encountered in, in this election cycle that I think goes to that point is that many of my fellow members of the religious right say they find themselves for the first time torn between candidates where, where the issues are not so clear because many evangelicals are uh, they're upset about war and they do see war as a life issue I know that uh, the last Pope for example talked about uh, pro-life being something that that extends through all life calling for not just an end to abortion but also the death penalty and uh, is, is pretty much against war as well so in the current election we have on one side a guy who is uh, committed to what are commonly considered the pro-life principles uh, namely abortion um, and on the other side, we've got two candidates uh, who are committed to what some people are seeing as, as another pro-life principle, which is ending war or, or ending well, but, the current but, war. But you, you know as well as I do that Catholic teaching is not pacifist. Sure. And you also know as well as I do that uh, abortion is about innocent life. Right. And you also know as well as I do that since war isn't off the table in terms of Catholic or Christian teaching, unless you're a pacifist, that death is going to result from war. So if, if you're going to allow war, you have to allow death. Now, so the issue really becomes, was this a prudentially correct war to engage in? And I think that's a matter of honest debate and honest disagreement. Right. And, yeah, I you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, and uh, I think we ought to have that debate. I think the issue is slightly more shaded than that. The idea being that we have had, um, say, Republican candidates who at least gave lip service to, to pro-life uh, legislation or pro-life policy for, for decades and yet have seen very, very, very little shift in any sort of legal recourse. And so I, I think the issue, it, it just kind of going to the, the point that evangelical voters or the religious right are, are less one-issue voters perhaps even than they used to be, it does seem people are willing to look beyond that as something the president doesn't have as much say-so in as, as maybe people used to think he did. Well, you know, I, I know that. I mean, I was, you know, very much supportive of Bush, helped him get elected with Catholics twice, and, you know, was head of a Catholic advisory group at the White House. So I Whenever Catholics that I knew or I encountered were unhappy with Bush, I heard about it. 
And one thing I heard was that, well, you know, he can't really change the abortion issue very much. But, you know, I don't think that's true. I, I think that, you know, that me, remember that first televised speech he made on stem cells? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't agree with that, with his decision entirely. I wished he had not had any federal funding at all, but, and I said so. But here's the President of the United States standing in front of a TV camera for the first time in his presidency, I'm sure the audience was large, saying he was pro-life, saying that he wanted to build a culture of life. Now, that's a pretty big deal in, it, when you look at the uh, influence of that message coming from the President of the United States at that particular time in history. That was very influential. And if you look, the number of abortions has gone down pretty significantly during his two terms of office to the point where we saw a month or two ago, according to the Guttmacher Institute, that they're in a historic low since, since the early 70s. Right. I, I think that trend did start in the late 90s, but unfortunately we're out of time to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Hudson, you bring up, uh, beyond, besides the book, which uh, we, we want only the best for, uh, you, you bring up a number of really interesting, thorny topics. I will come back anytime. Yeah, we'd love to have you come back. I will come back. We scratch the surface, barely. Let's go at it at length, and as as long as you guys want to do it. All right. Appreciate that very much. Let's give the the info on the book again. Absolutely. The book is Onward Christian Soldiers, the Growing Power, Political Power of Catholics and Evangelicals in the United States. Uh, The author is Deal Hudson. If you Google Deal Hudson, you will come up with his personal blog. Uh, for a link to purchase the book, go to the usual site, blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And thank you very much for spending thank time you. with us. I enjoy talking to you. I hope we'll talk again. Thank you very okay. much. Bye-bye. Well, we, uh, wow, we're, we're, we're squeezed for time. Uh, but let's dive into the world of fiction. Uh, Ray Reese, is, has written a novel, his third novel, uh, titled Abigail in Gangland. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Ray. Well, thanks very much. Yes, uh, and we got to quit doing these 15-minute things. It worked out okay last week, but, man, it's tight. Although it always leaves time to come back and talk. So, I mean, could we have two authors who are, who are more diametrically opposed? Right. In terms our, of our last author was a uh, not just a member of the religious right, but an advocate for the religious right. And uh, I think, Ray, you would uh, turn yourself in somewhat opposite terms. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't hear much of that uh, that dialogue, but uh, yeah, I was beginning to wonder if I'd call the right number. <laughs> let, me, let me put it that way. Well, I think you're both from Texas, though. Hey, how can oh uh, really? <laughs> how can that be? Well, yeah, the uh, the caller ID says that uh, that Deal was calling from uh, I think up in the northeast, whereas uh, Ray, you're calling from Austin, just a couple of hours south of me here in Dallas. Yeah. Well, let's but talk about the book early. real quick. Let's let's get the information out there. It's fascinating. I've it hadn't arrived here yet, so I haven't read it. Although I've I've re-requested it, and I will I will be sure to read it because it it sounds right up my alley. But why don't you give us a quick synopsis on the the neo beat fiction? of Abigail in Gangland and how it came about, because it kind of stems from some of your background, right? 
Well, yeah, sure. Almost, uh, in a, almost any novel, any any novelist will tell you that uh, that that what they're generating is a reflection to some extent, uh, maybe in some cases a great extent of their own experience. This is not autobiographical by any means, but it is based on on experience and uh, on on actual people I've encountered. Um, it's set in Fort, the fictional city of Fort Wade, Texas, a uh, 50-year-old uh, 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 burned-out artist in New York comes back to Fort Wade after 30-some-odd years to take care of his daffy old aunt, Abigail, whom he has lost pretty much lost touch with over the years, but has been drawn back to take care of, partly because he's been cut into a very significant inheritance, if he will live in her house and take care of her in her condition of uh, advanced Alzheimer's for the rest of her life. She lives across the street uh, from a Hispanic gang, a Latino gang called the Latin Blades, and she's a racist, a part of her her Alzheimer's um, is uh, the the resuscitation of uh, of, of old-fashioned Texas racism. So she's constantly agitating the members of this gang. This neighborhood has become largely Hispanic, and Luke's absence, he's the protagonist in the book, the guy who comes back to take care of her. Luke Thrasher. Yeah, Luke Thrasher, uh, taking care of Abigail. Um, the original title of this book was Aunt Thrash, in fact. Um, so it takes off from there and uh, gets you know crazier and crazier as the uh, as the story progresses. Luke is hungry for love, among other things. Back in New York, his longtime female companion has dumped him because he's so depressed, um, among other things. Uh, and um, so he uh, mixed in with uh, all of the trouble that brews with this uh, with this gang. Um, a, he's, you know, looking, looking for, looking for love, like all of us. In all the wrong places. Uh, mostly the wrong places. Um, arguably, even including the the place where he finally finds it, which is with the mother of one of the gang members. That sounds dicey. Yeah, that that becomes dicey, uh, and uh, adds, well, you know, a quantum leap of uh, suspense and tension to the story. And and I would think adds to the personal elements of it. Of, of oh yeah, 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 yeah. Confrontation between the cultures. Exactly, exactly. I won't, uh, you know, I, I won't, uh, you know, give away the uh, the ending of of the book. Um, no, don't, don't. I, I intend to read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a I, lot of fun. I, I've read i read the excerpts on your, your website, uh, rayreese.net, that's R-A-Y-R-E-E-C-E.net, actually has uh, some excerpts from the first couple of chapters of Abigail and Gangland. Gangland. Right, right. Uh, it's got a very, very nice style. It's very easy to read. I, I, I can sense that this is the sort of book I'd pick up and not put down until I was done. That's been the case. Whether, whether that was three in the morning or not. <laughs> Well, if it was three in the morning, we would be soulmates because that's that's usually when I'm either reading or writing. Now, did you? I, I know this was published first in. Uh, is it Hungary? Yes. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, I was living in Seged, Hungary, a, a town in southern Hungary. Doesn't uh, everyone? <laughs> they should. <laughs> 
it's a lovely place, I'll tell you that. Um, uh, when I finished the manuscript, I actually started it while I was still in Texas, but uh, but I put it aside to move to Italy first and then to, to Hungary. Uh, and I was there when I finished it, and uh, a friend there, a Hungarian who uh, is fluent in English, read the English manuscript, loved it, connected me with a publishing company in Budapest, which I thought, if anything, would publish it in English. That's what I was told by my friend. This little publishing company also loved the book, but they they didn't want to publish it in English. They translated it to Hungarian. So the first edition of the book serendipitously came out in Hungary in Hungarian with a different title. Uh, and it did uh, quite well, considering the you know almost nothing budget for marketing and so forth. So that encouraged the company to publish the U.S. edition as well. Oh, the same company. Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I see. So, and how and how long has it been out here? It was uh, the official publication date was November second, but but due to problems related to the publicity and marketing. I I would say it's only really just now. I would I would call publication date like yesterday. <laughs> uh, uh it's uh it's it's going to do I think it's going to do fine. But uh because of some mistakes that have been made it's it's been a little slow to take off. Well, let's be sure to let everyone know before we get into anything else. I'm interested in this whole pot angle because it seems to have uh, be a core element to the book. Uh, sex, pot, guns, and diapers. I mean, yeah, hey, there you yeah, go. yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in that. But let's be sure we let people know about the book itself before we go away. Right. Uh, yes, the the, the book, uh, I, I have actually referred to it uh, more than once as an anthem to uh, the virtues of uh, marijuana, including the um, medicinal value of marijuana. Um, this is one of the reasons uh, the book gets tagged Neo-Beat. Uh, there are other reasons. You know, the, the, the two main male characters... Uh, are uh, what I would call neo hippies. They're you know 50 year old uh, hippies, and uh, they do a lot of a lot of pot smoking. And um, the pot figures in an interesting way later on in uh, the treatment of Abigail's uh, racism, her Alzheimer's. Um, so um, is she being treated medicinally with marijuana? <laughs> unintentionally, yes. <laughs> Uh, I'll go ahead and spill that bean. Uh, this actually, though, I must tell you, is based on an actual experience with uh, with an elderly uh, uh, woman who had Alzheimer's. Um, so that part of the book is, you know, uh, uh, truth stranger than fiction realized as fiction. Interesting. I remember when I was in college, which... It's a while ago now. Your uh, your protagonist hitting fifty is not far off at all from where I personally am residing. Yeah, age wise. And uh, but back in college, uh, we I was at a friend's wedding. I guess it was right after college, and I met his grandmother. And his grandmother was um, in chemotherapy, and she was a absolutely unashamed, unabashed. 
dope smoker. Yes. And this is, you know, late 70s. You can imagine how bizarre we found that. Yeah. And, and we were just delighted and aghast to find this. And the, the woman had, you know, like I said, she was just completely unapologetic about it. Said, yeah, you know, it really helps a lot. And uh, it makes a lot of the symptoms go away. Well, you know, one of the poster children for pot among the uh, the old, older generation is Willie Nelson, uh, who's in his 70s now. He's in his later 70s now. Yeah, yeah, and he's also quite unabashed about it. Yeah, but, you know, he's a musician, so that doesn't count. <laughs> right. Well, well he's, also, he's also a biodiesel executive now. That's true. Yeah, Bio yeah. Willie, yeah, my favorite that's, brand. That's right. Well, that, that music that we ignored does, in fact, let us know that we are out of time. In fact, we've uh, just lost all of our live listeners. Anybody listening via podcast or archive can still hear us. Uh, we are still being recorded. Uh, so just one more time for, for the record. The novel is called Abigail in Gangland. You can find a link to order it from Amazon at the usual site, blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. You can also find links to order it from rayreef.net. That's R-A-Y-R-E-E-C-E.net. Uh, you'll find links to order both Abigail in Gangland and a previous book, The Sun Betrayed, as That's well right. as blog information and all kinds of other interesting things uh, from Ray. I do wish we had more time, Ray. We, uh, I know you and I spoke for a few minutes before the show. Yeah. And uh, I, I hope we get a chance to talk again when we can give you a little bit more than yeah, we absolutely. ten minutes. <laughs> we, we need to do it again. And, yeah, please. Uh, I, would, I would love it. Well, we're gonna, I'm going to get a copy. It's, it's on the way, and I will be happy to share that with Philip since he is okay. interested as well. And, and oh, we, I, I, may just, I may just knuckle down and order a copy, put, put a buck in Ray's pocket. Because you're <laughs> crazy like that. <laughs> yeah, we, we will uh, – I think we both have a lot of interest in this, and, and we would love to uh, return and have some more specific questions and, and discussion. Uh, last question I have, are, are you working on anything new book-wise? Uh, well, I have I have a nonfiction book that's kind of uh, uh, inching its way forward, but but the, the I'm I'm mainly concerned right now with uh, with promoting this book and sure. getting it you know getting it situated. Absolutely. Well, uh, as as we authors know, uh, the the promotion is almost as important as the writing of it to yeah. make sure that it gets out there, you know, and that people yeah. know about it. Absolutely. And finds its audience. Well. We uh, we we sure hope it it find yours finds its <laughs> I think is what I was trying to say and uh, yeah we'd be real happy to talk to you again here down the line a little bit and good luck with it and hope we uh, hopefully we pointed a few people in the right direction and uh, really sounds interesting and uh, you know best wishes with it. Well, let me mention something. I would be quite interested. Is it Phil who lives in Dallas? Philip, yes. Philip, if you will send me. Um, let me give you my email address. Uh, do, right. Oh, no, I can't do that. Going on out? Yeah. Uh, um, I, I have your caller ID on here. I can, I can call you right back. As soon as okay, you know. okay, because I can, uh, I'd like for you to have a copy of this because the, the, the novel is also a critique of what Luke calls the Metropox. <laughs> the, 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 nice. D, the DFW Metropox. Um <laughs> And I would love to have your take on that. My stomping grounds. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I will. Uh, I will call you back. Uh, basically, within a minute or so of this uh, show going off uh, off the air. Okay. Great. I can close that out now. 
Thank you very much, both of you. All right, thank you. See ya. Best of luck with it. Thank you, bye. Okay, bye. Well, thank you to Ray Reese for talking with us tonight. Uh, His book is Abigail in Gangland. And another thanks to Deal Hudson, Dr. Deal Hudson, whose book is Onward Christian Soldiers, The Growing Power of Catholics and Evangelicals in the United States. Thanks also to, oh, we'll skip that one, and we will thank... Uh, We will thank the many members of A Kiss Could Be Deadly, uh, Lauren, John, Chris, and Kelly for being on the the top of the program. Find out more about absolutely everybody at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. This has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room, watch the live video feed where I wave at the camera on occasion, if you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online. In fact, that's probably where you're listening right now. Or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. There's an hour of hip-hop coming up in just less than one hour. Listen to the Cyber Mixtape Show with QRock638 on Blog Talk Radio. And check out blogcritics.org slash bcradio for a complete schedule. Until next week, aloha!